Amen. Thank you, Jonathan, for leading this morning. And, and Kyle and John and Caleb and Abigail. Thank you all. You know, we're in the book of Romans, but I'm just going to call your attention to that verse 9, chapter 5, that we left off with last week. Remember, the Bible says, we're talk, by the way, we're talking about the blessings of the gospel. We've talked about the fact that we have peace with God because of Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. We have access to God because of that. We have hope and the glory of God. One of the things what we started talking about last week is we are delivered or saved from the wrath of God. And that is a present reality that we're no longer under God's wrath. And if you missed last Sunday, um, it it isn't already it will be soon online on our website where you can listen to it i think it would be good for all believers especially to listen to that to understand that um, you've been delivered from wrath you can't appease god by doing good works god's already wrath has already been appeased by the work of jesus christ on the cross but this verse 9 of romans 5 says we shall be saved from wrath through him it says we shall be saved from wrath so there's also some future reality about being saved from wrath in other words there is wrath to come somewhere in the future that we're saved from so to what could paul be referring here well <coughs> there are people who are still under god's wrath because of their unbelief you remember last week we looked at this passage in John chapter 3. In verse 16, you know, he says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Verse 19, uh, for, for, I'm sorry, verse 17 says, God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he does not believe in the name of the only Son of God. And then verse 36, he says, he who believes in the Son has everlasting life. He who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides upon him. So not only do they who don't believe in Christ and what he's done for them, abide under the wrath of God at this moment, but if they don't repent of their sin and turn to God, there is a wrath to come. John the Baptist warned the Pharisees who were listening to him preach in the desert. He said, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 10 Bible says, for those who place their faith and trust in Jesus to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. 
So there's a future aspect of this wrath. We as believers are delivered from God's wrath presently, but we're also delivered from God's wrath to come. And what do you think this wrath to come is? What do you think he's referring to? I believe one of the things that is spoken of here is that we have been saved from the wrath of an eternity in hell. And that those who never turn from their sin and come to Christ, those who never believe in him, that's what they face, an eternity of God's wrath in hell. Now that's very a very serious matter, even for us who have come to Christ and we've been saved from God's wrath. First of all, it's serious because we believers forget what we've been saved from. Now, you just think about that for a minute. Forever. Can your mind comprehend forever? My little feeble brain can't. Forever. But hell, forever. We forget that's what we were saved from. We also forget that that's where those without Christ, in reality, are headed. And some who died without Christ are there now. And we also forget as believers how serious it is for us to obey the great commission of taking the gospel of Jesus Christ into all the world. Because if hell is real, and it is, then how much greater motivation could there be than to realize that's what we were delivered from and we want everybody to be delivered from it. I would imagine that most of us here are pro-life. We want to do all we can to save the lives of unborn children from abortion. Many believers take this matter very seriously, as we should. We spend a lot of money lobbying to get Roe v. Wade reversed. We vote for legislation and legislators that support pro-life measures, and we should. We vehemently oppose abortion. We're compelled to stand up and speak for the innocent. And we want to do everything we can to save the lives of the unborn. But I want to ask you this morning a question. Where all those millions and millions of babies that have been aborted, where are they now? They're in heaven. Let me ask you another question. Where are people going who reject Christ? Where are all those people that died rejecting Christ? Where are they? They're in hell. So which issue then has far more eternal ramifications? Which issue does the church seem more focused on? You see, I am compelled by the gospel of Jesus Christ to stand for the lives of all people, born or unborn. I'm compelled to lead our church to valiantly fight for the rights of the unborn. But I'm also compelled as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus Christ, to not just help save the lives of the unborn, but to help save the souls 
of the unreborn. For Jesus said, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Which issue is, has greater eternal significance and ramifications? It is not abortion. It is unbelief. And the church should valiantly strive to rescue those who are caught in unbelief as we once were. Do you remember when you were caught in unbelief? Do you remember the time when you were headed to hell? Just think if you would have died that way. God wants us to see the seriousness of hell and for our hearts to break over those headed there as his day. R.C. Sproul once said, We've often heard statements such as, War is hell, or I went through hell. And these expressions are, of course, not taken literally, rather they reflect our tendency to use the word hell as a descriptive term for the most ghastly human experience possible. Yet no human experience in this world can actually be compared to hell. If we were to imagine the worst possible suffering in the here and now, we have not yet stretched our imagination to reach the dreadful reality of hell. There's no biblical concept more grim or terror-invoking than the idea of hell. It is so unpopular with us that we would give, that few of us would give credence to it at all, except that it comes from the teaching of Christ Himself. R.C. Sproul commented, "Almost all the biblical teaching about hell comes from the lips of Jesus Christ." But we just aren't comfortable with the reality of hell. Therefore, we minimize it. We trivialize it. We joke about it. We sanitize it. It's not that bad. Even Christians don't want hell to be a real place because that means that people we know who don't have a saving, life-changing relationship with Christ and, and whom we've refused to talk to about Him have died or are dying and headed there or have died and gone there, and our conscience just can't bear it. So we rather choose to just ignore it altogether and our obligation to do something about it. Or we lie to ourselves. And we try to convince ourselves, well, at least they're in a better place. At least they're not suffering anymore. Friends, are you aware that if that person in that casket died without Christ, they're in the worst place possible? And they've never suffered like they're suffering now? I imagine your mind is being filled that right now with memories of friends family members, co-workers that have died that you suspect did not have a saving relationship with Christ and that you did little or nothing about and you feel guilt. And I'm thinking of those people too. One in particular was a basketball buddy of mine in high school, Kip. 
The only guy that I knew that had five names. Kip, Albert, Allen, John, Freshenau. He was the point guard for my senior basketball team, junior and senior. Kip and I had a close relationship. In fact, when Kip got the ball, which was every time down the court, his first thought was, I want to find Lee Waller open and get him the ball. I credit him for the success of my senior year, being named most valuable player. Really, I should have given that trophy to Kip. But what I didn't give to Kip was what he needed the most, a gospel witness. I was a friend, but I wasn't a good friend. Two years after high school, Kip was killed in an automobile accident while another one of our friends was driving. On my conscience, as Ezekiel would say, his blood is on my hands. I had every opportunity, but I never took it. I forgot, and I still sometimes forget the seriousness and the reality of hell. I pray that, that our hearts would break over the reality that people we know and are still living are headed there right now unless we do something about it we can't force Jesus on them but that's not the issue is it the issue is that we don't even try to talk to them a lot of times we just let it go when we know we have an opportunity I want to examine this morning and next Sunday morning there are four things I'm going to share I'm going to share two because it's such a heavy subject and time is short. But I want to examine, if, if, if most of what is said about hell came from the lips of Jesus, I want to look at what Jesus had to say about hell as we're talking about what we've been saved from so that we can remember what we've been saved from, so we can remember and be reminded what unbelievers are headed to and so that we can remember how serious is the command for us to take the gospel into all the world. And I want to ask you to open your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 16. That's going to be the text from where this message comes from today and next Sunday. You will see the scriptures on the screen as well, but let's begin reading verse 19. Luke 16, 19. There was... A certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid up at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. See the picture of suffering in this life in the person of Lazarus? So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. 
Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted, and you are tormented. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great gulf fixed, so that those who want to come or want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. Then he said, I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. The first thing I want you to see this morning in their notes on the back of your worship bulletin is that a life sown apart from God reaps an eternity apart from God. A life that is sown, lived apart from God here, will reap an eternity forever. How long are you going to live here? 75, 85, 95 years? That's short comparison to an eternity a life sown apart from God reaps an eternity the man Jesus spoke of in this account is described as a rich man who fared sumptuously every day that means he lived it up in luxury self-indulgence denied himself nothing that he desired and the inference is that he ignored God and anything to do with the condition of his soul He was only interested in the things of this world. Jesus told his disciples it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Let's go to that passage and look at verse 18. I mean, Luke chapter 18, where Jesus had this encounter with this rich young ruler. He came to Jesus and he asked Jesus the right question. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life. Jesus said in verse 19, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one that is God. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. Why did Jesus introduce the law there? The same reason you and I should introduce the law when we're talking to people about Jesus because the exposure of the law helps us realize how sinful we are. There's no doubt When you hear those words, or you hear the words of the law, the Ten Commandments, that you're convicted. Yes, I have lied. I have cheated. I have dishonored my father and my mother. Yes, I have done these things. And this man, in his arrogance, said, all these things I've done since I was a boy. And Jesus said, verse 22, you still lack one thing. See, you can keep the whole law. You could be perfect, doubtful, very extremely, not only doubtful, but wrong. You can't. still lack one thing and Jesus said go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor and then come and follow me what was the one thing he was lacking giving it all up to give his life to Christ Jesus said try to save your life in this world 
In this life, you'll lose it, but give it up and you'll find it. That's what this man wasn't willing to do. It says, verse 23, when he heard this, he became very sorrowful, for he was very rich. And that's when Jesus said in verse 25, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man the kingdom of God. You see, the devil wants to keep you and I focused on material matters. You would say, well, I'm, I'm not rich, so he ain't talking about me. Well, you know what? You can be poor as Adam's house cat, and this still be true of you because you're pursuing riches. You're pursuing material things over pursuing God. Jesus said, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things that we worry about, that we're trying to fix and solve and meet these needs, all these things will be added to you when we seek first the kingdom of God. The devil wants us to be concerned with the here and now and not to think about the then and there. People often wonder or say, how could a loving God send sinners to hell? You ever heard that? One person offered this answer. Who does it? They volunteer. They live with little or no interest in God, the Bible, prayer, church, or other people. And even if you call yourself a Christian, but you have little or no desire for God or his word or time with him or seeking him for your life, that ought to really concern you about your eternity. Many who claim to be a Christian and claim to have had some decision early in life, but they live apart from God. They live apart from his son, Jesus Christ. They, they live apart from his church. They live apart from his word. And they expect to go to heaven when they die. They're being deceived and living a lie. For Jesus said in Matthew 7, 21, not everybody that says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. There may be some of you in here who are members of this church. And you had some childlike experience, but you have absolute no desire for God and his word. You're just busy living your life, trying to make a living while losing your life. And you may wake up in hell. I heard one preacher say one time, when we get, if you make it to heaven, you'll be surprised at who is there and who isn't there. Some of the people you thought would never make it got saved. And you didn't know about it, and they show up in heaven. And some of the people you went to church with, you thought, you thought for sure they were going to be there. And you look around, and they aren't there. hope that's not any of you. Notice in our text in Luke 16, verse 29 to 32, the rejection of God's word on this rich man's part. Father Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. He's talking about the Old Testament. He's talking about the word of God, which was all they had in the New Testament times. He said, and, and then the man said, no, Father Abraham, no, the word of God's not good enough. Somebody has to go back from the dead. Listen, if you won't hear the word of God, you won't hear even a dead person walking. No matter where they came from. No, he rejected the word of God. There's got to be some other way. Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. No man comes to the Father except through me. There's only one way. 
Don't reject the way that God's made for you through Jesus Christ. A Barna poll indicated that 76% of Americans believe in heaven and 71% believe in hell. Of those who believe in heaven, 50% of the 76% who say they believe in heaven say you can get there without believing in Jesus. One author wrote, if you spend your life telling God to be quiet and leave you alone, hell is that place where he honors your request. Look at Galatians 6, verse 7 and 8. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. What are you sowing? A life with God or a life apart from God? A life apart from God will reap an eternity without him. A life sown with God will reap an eternity with Him. A young man was converted during some evangelistic meetings held in a mining village. After he got saved, he, he wanted to do what all saved people want to do. He wanted to serve the Lord. He wanted to reach people for Christ. My friends, I would challenge you, if you're truly saved, that would be your desire too. If you have no desire to reach people for Christ, I would seriously get on my face before God and find out, am I really saved? But this man wanted to do something to reach people for Christ, so all he could think to do is he went out and he bought some tracks, and he began distributing them one day when he met some former companions. And they began to make fun of him, mock him for his faith in Christ. And my friends, I will tell you that that will happen, and maybe that's why we don't do it. We don't want to be made fun of. We don't want to be mocked. But again, I remind you what Jesus said. If you're willing to lay down your life for his sake in the Gospels, you'll find it. But if you try to hang on to your life and your reputation, you're going to lose it. Well, after this boy was made fun of, they asked him, said, Hey, can you tell me where hell is? And this young man who had been saved said, Yes, it's at the end of a life lived without Christ. That's where it is. Remember, all God has done to keep that from happening. If you're saved here, you've been saved from that. So when someone finds themselves in hell, they won't be shaking an angry fist at God. They'll be remembering every opportunity they had to come to God and didn't. And they'll hate themselves for it. My friends, if you walk out of here today unsaved and you die that way, you'll remember this very moment. And you'll hate yourself for walking out doing the opposite. And I want to say something to believers. If you leave here today and, and don't ask God for a burden and compassion for those without Christ and start doing something like this young man, doing something, you don't know what, but do something. And one of your loved ones dies, or one of your good friends or your co-workers dies without Christ, you'll live with that guilt the rest of your life. Yes, God will forgive you. God has forgiven me for that, for not witnessing to Kip like I should have, but I still live with that. 
And I don't want that on my conscience in my mind, but it's there. And I don't want it to happen again if I can help it. Hell is the eternity without God because of a life lived without God. The second thing is that hell is a real, literal place separated from God. Look at verses 22 and back in Luke 16 and 23. So it was when the beggar died that he was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And then verse 26 says, And besides all this, between us and you there's a great gulf fixed, so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. Now, if Jesus would have stopped at verse 22, it says, The beggar died and was carried by the angels in Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. If he stopped there, we could all breathe a sigh of relief. We'd all be safe. You see, some believe that the grave is it. That's the final resting place. You die, you're just like a dog. That's it. Just like that goldfish you flush down the commode. Whoop, he's gone. <laughs> Exists no more. That's what some people believe happened to them when they died. Or they believe that hell is the grave. But Jesus didn't stop there. Verse 22, he went on to describe where this rich man was. He says, in Hades. Now, I'm aware that some translate Hades to be the grave. Or the abode of the dead, like the Old Testament word Sheol. But if you look at verse 23, 24, 25, and 28, you hear a word repeated in those four verses. Do you know what that word is that's repeated? Torment. How can somebody that just died and they cease to exist be tormented? They can't. So obviously Jesus is referring to somewhere else. Besides the grave. And the rules of biblical interpretation, we always let the context tell us what he's talking about. So when you read this context, do you think Jesus is talking about the grave where you cease to exist? Or do you think he's talking about another place, what the Bible calls hell? It's quite obvious what he's talking about, isn't it? This man was not ceasing to exist. This man was in a place of torment. In contrast, where did Lazarus go? It says Abraham's bosom. A picture of where God is. Now I'll remind you of Luke chapter 20. If you remember, Jesus was being, they were trying to trick Jesus in Luke chapter 20 by asking him, giving him this silly scenario of a woman who is married and her husband dies. And the Jewish law was then her bro his brother would have to marry her to keep the, the, the family line going. And then what if he died? And then what if the third brother died and the fourth brother died? All the way up to the seventh brother, they were trying to quit trick Jesus into saying and asking this question, which 
brother would she be married to in the resurrection? Well, this was the Sadducees asking Jesus this question. They don't even believe in the resurrection, so they're trying to trip him up. And in Matthew, Jesus said, your mistake is you don't know the scriptures. But in Luke, Jesus said, what did Moses say? What did God say to Moses when Moses said, who are you, Lord? What shall I say to them when I go back to Israel and, and, and say to them, God has sent me back to deliver you? Who am I going to say that you are? And he said, I am the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and Jacob. And Jesus said to these Sadducees, he says, what, Moses, what God was saying to Moses was, I am the God of the living and not the dead. And so when we see Lazarus in Abraham's bosom, it is a picture of where God is. Abraham is with the living God. He's living with the living God. And, and Lazarus is there in the presence of God. You see, heaven is with the Lord. The Bible says heaven is the Lord's throne. Earth is his footstool. You got a footstool at home? You got a throne too, don't you? Now, I'm not talking about that throne. I'm talking about that easy chair. And you put your... Maybe, maybe you lift the recliner and you put your feet up on that footstool. Well, God says, heaven's his throne. It's where he reigns from. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5, 8, to be absent from this life for a believer is to be present with the Lord. Heaven's with the Lord. Hell is without the Lord. Does the Bible tell us that? Yes, in many places, that hell is a place of separation from God. Remember Matthew 7, 21? Not everybody that says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of God, but he that does the will of my Father. And he said, some will say to me in that day, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many wonderful works in your name? And Jesus will say to them, what? Depart, where? From me. I never knew you. You look at chapter 25 of Matthew. This is Jesus separating those of his who from those who are not his. And he says in verse 41, he will say to those on the left hand, those who are not his, depart from me, you cursed into the everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. In verse 46, and these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. In Luke chapter 13, verse 25 through 28. Again, Jesus talking about this says, When once the master of the house has risen up and shut the door, by the way, <clears throat> I believe his hand is on the door and it's closing. It's not closed yet. You see, this is a picture of Noah's ark. Noah's ark was actually a picture of this. Noah built the ark and preached for 120 years, the Bible tells us. But only eight souls were saved. And when those eight souls got on the ark, what does it say happened to the door? God shut the door, not Noah. God shut the door. Finality, done. See, the door is being closed now, but the door is still open. It says, when the master of the house rises up to shut the door and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door saying Lord, Lord, open for us and he will answer and say to you I do not know you, where are you from 
Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. In other words, we went to church every Sunday. We went to those potluck dinners, remember? We even brought casseroles. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know you. Where are you from? Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and you yourselves, what? Thrust out. See, that's what this man was seeing. He was seeing Abraham in the kingdom and he was thrust out, separated from God. Paul also alluded to this separation in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 8 and 9, where he says, In flaming fire God will take vengeance on those who do not know him and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Hell is a real, literal place separated forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever from God. Even this rich man testified to it being a real place because he was there. In verse 28, he said, to lest my brothers come to this place of torment. It's a literal place, altogether different from another place. Jesus said to his followers, I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, heaven, you will be also. Which place are you headed for? The answer is, whichever place you're living for. Which place are you living for? Which place are your loved ones headed for? Which place are your friends and co-workers headed for? What do you plan on doing about it? Father, this is not an easy message to talk about or preach, but it's necessary. All of us in this room are definitely under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Some are being convicted of their sin of unbelief that they are living a life of rejection, rejection of you and what you did for them through your son Jesus Christ on the cross. And they think they're going to get another chance, either in this life or even if they die, they think they'll get another chance, or, or that you would not be so bad as to send them to hell. Yet that's what they want. They want to be separated from you here. Why would they want to be with you there? So, Lord, they... There's those in unbelief who are being convicted. I pray that that conviction would not be wasted 
but that today they would turn from their sins of unbelief and turn from all of their sin and place their faith in Jesus Christ who died for them and ask you to forgive them and save them. And Lord, there's conviction upon us believers today. I feel convicted by this message. Lord, I'm not the witness I should be. I'm not as bold as you want me to be. Lord, I know that there are people in these pews that are convicted. They're your people, Lord, but they're just as convicted by their disobedience and by the guilt and blood on their hands. So, Lord, we repent of our sin this morning of disobeying your command to take the gospel wherever we go. We confess our complacency as sinners. We confess that we have minimized and trivialized and held. And we don't think often enough about it, but that's where these people who don't know you are going. But Lord, because you rescued us, someone brought us the truth. Someone brought us the good news that we could escape hell. Through Jesus. Oh God, may we pay it forward. May we do the same for someone else. Break our hearts, God, over what breaks your heart. Break my heart. Fill us with compassion, the compassion of Jesus. As he hung on that cross and poured out his life's blood for sinners like me. And he cried out, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. God, help us to take this message everywhere we go. Help us not to hide. Help us not to hide your gospel and your name. It will cost us. But the price we pay will pale in comparison to the reward we will receive. Now, Lord, as we respond to you during this moment of invitation, give us grace to be obedient. As our heads are bowed and eyes are closed, we'll stand and sing in just a moment, but is there someone here today that needs to give their heart to Jesus? Someone here today that says, I, I, I don't want to go to that place. Some of you might be so sanctimonious to say, well, that's not the reason a person ought to be saved. Well, why not? When I was a six-year-old boy, that's kind of what motivated me. It's okay. Jesus will take you as you are, where you are. So give your life to him. He'll save you. Ask him to. He'll save you. Believe in him. He'll save you. Put it in your own words. But just turn to him by faith.
dear Christian, did God put someone's name in your heart this morning? I'm almost sure he did. That's the person or persons he's sending you through this week. In fact, why don't you make a commitment that you won't close your eyes in sleep until you've reached out to that person in some way. Maybe it's to set up an appointment for lunch, to have them over. Maybe it's to invite them over for dinner and just start a continued building a relationship. But did you make a commitment to do something? Father, help us to respond in obedience to your command in Jesus' name. Let's stand.